From the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, a very pleasant good morning to you. Yeah, we, we, actually, we actually made it. I don't know how we made it. This is Patrick Timpone. We'll do a little, uh, an abbreviated version, if you will, with Fred Dyshevsky. It's the first uh, Wednesday of the month, and Fred has U.S. Coin Capital, former partner of Andrew Goss, and they were together for a long time. You know Andrew. We talked to him for about 15 years every week on the real world of money. And after Andrew left, well, then Fred uh, rebooted the company. Bigger, better than ever. U.S. Coin Capital, C-A-P-I-T-O-L. And he buys and sells gold coins for a living and keeps, keeps us on the straight and narrow to try to figure out uh, what's going on in the world of money. And... Uh, one of the issues we were having was we could Fred couldn't hear me on the video, so we finally worked on that for about a half an hour, 45 minutes. said, well, we'll just do it on the phone. Good morning, Fred, on the phone. How are you doing on the phone? Well, good morning. We're going back to old technology, you know. <laughs> I love right. it. <laughs> when, when in doubt, old technology prevails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next thing you know, I'll take out a piece of paper and a pencil, and I'll scribble the note to oh, you. Oh, man. Well, you know, you're getting really carried away now. Mr. Fred, I every time you know when I go surfing around and looking, looking and seeing what's going on in the in the economy, I'm, we we see a lot of uh, doom and gloomers that are predicting some really hard landings for whatever it is that's going on here. What's your take on this July fifth day? Of uh, you know, is it possible that we the people in the United States are going to experience some really terrible, dumb things? Or what's your take? Well, you know, anything is possible, as they say. Uh, I always tend to look at things in terms of probabilities more than possibilities, because, you know, one could argue that, um, you know, technically anything is possible. So does that mean it's likely, you know? So then I start looking at, well, how realistic is it or how likely is it to happen? And unfortunately, you know, for those that are in the doom and gloom set, our collapsitarian fans who have been around for a long time, (laughs) you know, First thing, obviously, this has been a subject that's come up for many, many years and yet to come to fruition, which doesn't, you know, necessarily mean that it won't. Well, never, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, in terms of likelihood, um, I have dismissed an awful lot of the rationale that people have posed for what they believe would be the cause. And, you know, I just find it hard to believe that after all of the decades of establishment of a world currency of the United States dollar, that you know, any one event would be the cause of its great disaster. So when people come up with these pretenses for, you know, something that's going to happen on a particular date or mm-hmm. something, I, you know, I tend to lean toward the idea that they're less likely to actually come to fruition. And as it has turned out year after year after year, that has held up. Uh, you know, now I've been very careful also to make sure that people understand by no means does that indicate that I am comfortable with the current environment or don't believe that it's possible these things that are happening around the world could eventually pile up, mm-hmm. you know, and start start to create the kind of problems that people foresee. Um, but I think it's sequential. I think there would be a long series of events that would occur over time, and there certainly could be any individual event that comes up that kicks a market. Um, you know, look at what we've seen so far the first half of this year. You know, we've had uh, a fiscal problem that led to uh, the government running out of money and we hit a debt ceiling, which turned out to be a political problem for about a month and caused a lot of financial problems. You know, there was tremendous volatility in the open markets due to that, which everybody pretty much knew uh, was going to end with the result that they would raise the debt limit. Mm-hmm. And then we had a banking crisis in the middle of the spring, which, again, a lot of people thought that that would lead to the inevitable collapse of the entire banking system. But it didn't. You know, it was much more isolated. But the number of these kinds of events that come out of nowhere, um, well, the debt ceiling certainly didn't come out of nowhere, but the banking crisis did, you know, which was a result of the Fed raising rates uh, and and artificially manipulating the market. They shrink the balance sheet uh, because of quantitative easing and, you know, in the middle of a multi-trillion dollar deficit and fiscal expansion, the consequences of the financial system were that we definitely saw some hiccups, and yet we've survived. So I still take the belief that the U.S. dollar uh, will sustain its status, Uh, although, again, you know, numerous powers that be are slowly chipping away at that. And, 
unfortunately, I'm a little bit concerned because where we are at this point is the only thing that provides the stability to the U.S. dollar is this belief that it will sustain hmm. its nature as the world's reserve currency. If that should fall apart for any reason, you know, we're, we're in for a lot of trouble. So, so you're talking about confidence, right? As, uh, as we used to say, it's a confidence game when you have a fiat currency. It's just about confidence, huh? People. It really is. And, you know, we, we saw in the banking crisis how quickly that eroded, right? So mm-hmm. people lost confidence in the bank so quickly that within a matter of days, literally days, uh, there were transfers of hundreds of billions of dollars from various banking accounts. Um, as people became concerned almost overnight that there was an instability issue. And uh, on that concern, they moved their capital out of those banking instruments quickly and piled into things like mutual funds or anything that would pay any kind of reasonable interest payment these days in order to help protect themselves. So, you know, how quickly the confidence eroded in the banking system is a very good indicator of how unstable or unstable, hmm. you know, the whole environment is when it comes down to that. If confidence is the last bastion supporting the entire structure, that's pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> Because that could that could leave at any time, just because blacks want things and things happen and people just freak out. Sure, and you know, so we have now the next part of this year, twenty twenty three. We have the second half coming up, and you know what what I've noticed recently is how many of these uh, black swan events, as you put them, and I think that's a great way to to express it. Mm-hmm. They come out of you know out of left field, but the number of them. And the rate at which they show up seems to be increasing. Yes. Right? It could just be me, but it seems like it's not five or ten years in between them anymore. In fact, I'm going to say I doubt we make it through the end of this year without something else happening that we don't now know. There'll be another event between now and December that'll also cause financial upset. And it could be anything. But again, you know, my concern for those investors that are out there is that when a currency's value is left by the only support that it gets, and that is coming from a mental status, you know, people's belief mm-hmm. that it's there, because the fundamentals are so flawed, uh, that is a, a terrifying way to view the future of, of the value of an economy. And I think it requires that people recognize that with that flaw being there and the uncertainty that it provides, it seems to be very prudent for people to have some real solid, tangible money to comprise at least a portion of what they're putting away for their future. And, you know, this idea has been uh, espoused for, for decades, but it's becoming much more of a necessity, you know, more than just a marketing plan for people investing. It used to just be something that people would say, well, this makes financial sense. You always should diversify. And, you know, most financial advisors, no matter how conservative or even if those are you know, not necessarily fans of gold or silver, they would still encourage people to have a small percentage of their assets in that market, just the diversification. Sure. But, you know, now I, I think it's an absolute necessity hmm. uh, because we can't count on the stability of paper currencies that are being floated by a government that is running up so much debt that people are actually starting to think twice about the legitimacy of our ability to make payments in the future. Well, that gets a little hairy. So... I'm seeing that the 10-year Treasury yield is going up. What is that telling us? What does that tell us? Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the 10-year is basically the benchmark, and, yeah. and it, sets, it sets the stage, as it were. Uh, you know, the Fed has been raising rates rather aggressively. It took a pause last month, but then turned around and said it'll probably have to raise rates two more times before year-end because the inflation problem has not dissipated. So, you know, the 10-year reflects, uh, the nature of people's confidence and the ability of the treasury and and as an option for people to park their capital, you know, people see the stock market, it is volatile, it is climbing, people worry about whether or not that could sustain itself and what other options are there. I mean, we saw the flaw with the banking system not offering uh, high enough interest payments to investors. It led them to look elsewhere. You know, that's what... Um, a Silicon Valley bank was able to mm-hmm. gain from by offering and dangling the carrot of higher rates than the street would pay. And it was able to get tons of money from investors, especially a lot of the startup companies in Silicon Valley, because they were willing to pay more interest than the street would offer. So, you know, that tenure kind of gives us the benchmark for what 
we need to see for sustainable interest payments. But when I look at the 10-year, I still see an inverted yield curve. In other words, the, the shorter payment yield investments like the two-year notes and the five-year bonds are actually paying higher than the 10-year. So what's the encouragement to, to ask somebody to give their money to the government and hold on to it for a 10-year period if you can get a higher interest payment on a two-year yeah, note? Why would you do that? Yeah, why, would you do that? why would you do that? Well, you know, again, it's a matter of financing. So if you're dealing with tons of money, if you're a hedge fund and you've got hundreds of billions of dollars that you have to park somewhere, okay, you know, you've got a locked rate, uh, let's just, let's call it 5.1%, and you're going to get that. You've got your 10-year period locked up, and now you can move on and say, okay, what else do we do? So there's stability in it, uh, stability in the sense that it's not going to change. And if we believe the, the concept that the government would never default on these obligations, then we at least can say that that's as close to a guaranteed payment as we're going to see in any kind of investment vehicle. So, you know, the 10-year becomes the benchmark. It's what people look at. And based upon that, you find that the real estate market, for example, will float the rates that people pay for mortgages, you know, based upon the yield of the 10-year. So in other words, if the 10 should go up in interest, I would imagine you will also see rates go up when it comes to buying mortgages uh, because, again, they're going to be linked together because as that 10-year goes up, it's an indicator that it's going to cost more for banks to borrow money from the Fed and they're going to charge more for loans outgoing to the general public. And everybody's going to looking for, you know, again, um, we need some sort of benchmark. It's like the spot price of gold. It's right. the starting point from which everything launches. What, what is the 30-year fix right now? Do you have any idea what it is? 30-year, um, I'm not in front of that screen okay. right now, but the last I saw it was under 4%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why, so the government, the government wants to sell 10 years? They, they, they want to sell longer? It'll sell, huh? it'll sell anything. Okay, no, whatever. They don't care, right? It's like, please give us your money. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they have a variety of the options for various investors in order to, uh, you know, gain more attraction from a broader number of people. But yeah, I mean, the government would love to see locked up money on 30-year basis and, and know that it's got a fixed rate and it's done. And because the yields are low enough, you know, they, they have a better shot. But it's harder and harder to convince people to take out 30-year money, yeah. you know, when the yields are 3.5%. And inflation is still running, even according to the government, you know, at two and a half times that much, uh, it becomes progressively difficult for people to see the logic, you know, in sustaining that. But here's the fundamental issue. People still need to find a place to park the capital. Right. You know, because what options exist? You know, you've got a stock market that, again, it's producing good gains for those that are in the right place at the right time. There's a tremendous amount of volatility, but even the uh, major hedge funds will not put all of their capital into the market. That the stock market. So they're going to be looking for alternatives. They're going to be looking for other ways. You know, and there were days, there were times where you and I could park money in our local bank and get paid enough interest that it covered the inflation problem or close to it, where it almost made sense. But the yields have been so low out of the banking instruments that, you know, they've almost forced people to look for alternatives. And where they've ended up, in a lot of cases, they're mutual funds, back into the stock market, and, of course, a lot of that money has come into gold and silver, um, you know, both as a hedge and also as an option to see some sort of gain and growth against the rate of inflation, which gold has been managing to do. So so what's really driving, in your opinion, Fred Dashevsky, the, uh, uh, the rising prices, you know, at the store with the meat and milk and eggs, you know, the classic ones? Um, and I don't understand how just raising interest rates can can make the price of meat or milk go down. Is that just made up stuff that they tell you they're trying to do something? <laughs> well, don't tell that to the Fed because that basically rips out their... That's uh, their whole story, right? That's their whole that's story. Their whole story. <laughs> yeah. it's, you remove that from the Fed, they're screwed. Yeah, what else um, are you going to do? The short answer to your question is what's caused the rate increases of costs, goods and services to go up in price, has been a absolutely massive proliferation of money since the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to remember how vast we did 
uh, a massive increase in money supply during that period. It was enormous. It was the largest single increase in the money supply in the history of the United States in the shortest period of time ever recorded, on top of which the Fed spent two years cranking interest rates from basically zero and ran them up, you know, 500 basis points in a short period of time. Because once they printed all that money, the net result of that is it's forcing prices to go higher because we've diluted the existing value of money by having created all that additional capital. Mm -hmm. The benefit of having done that is printing capital creates economic stimulus. So it's a dual-edged sword. So in one respect, the printing of all that money was a way of moving the economy out of that dead drop that we hit after COVID shut down economic activity. In order to stimulate economic activity, the Fed pumped and pumped and pumped capital into the market. Quantitative easing existed for a year and a half, and they put more capital out into the market and raised their balance sheet to levels nobody had ever seen. Then it turned around and said, okay, we went too far too fast, and now we have to unwind this somewhat, and this is where the raising of interest rates comes in. It's an effort to tap the brakes, to slow that, that movement of capital that has been created by the printing of money, and hopefully by reducing the flow of capital, we slow the economy down, and if we slow the economy down, that should help reduce prices across the board. There's been negligible results from I mean, that, 10 yeah. hikes by the Fed. Wow. And let me tell you how scary that is. Wow. Let's, say there had been, let's say there had been no results, and the Fed had done that extreme you know, rate hike, uh, two years of rate hikes, you know, aggressive rate hikes, most aggressive rate hikes the Fed's done, and nothing would have happened. That would have just indicated the Fed has no power at all. Mm -hmm. And that would have been, in itself, rather devastating. Oh, because then they kind of said the emperor has no clothes kind of thing. So you guys did all this, and then nothing happened. And nothing <laughs> happened, yeah. So how do you, how do you now yeah, provide well, any confidence that you can control anything in the, in the economy? So the Fed has got to be thankful. I mean, they've got to be, like, you know, really happy that they're beginning to see some signs that, you know, labor is easing a bit and, you know, some of the prices are beginning to tail off. But what's really happening is that instead of the prices beginning to drop as a result of the rate hikes, what's actually happened is that they're just not rising as quickly. Oh, yeah. Okay. They're just not and rising as quickly. Yeah. Right. Which is a big distinction that needs to be addressed. So rates are still going up. Mm -hmm. The cost of goods and services are still rising. Yes. But the Fed has managed to slow down the rate at which they're going up, to which they feel like, you know, they've managed to do something. <laughs> so much so that they paused raising rates last month. And they said, well, we're going to take a breath here because they're getting a lot of pushback from, you know, the financial world saying, okay, enough rate hikes. It's like you're choking the economy. You know, it's beginning to have a negative impact on a lot of things. We don't want to see it go too far, because if you continue this squeezing of race and tightening of monetary policy, you're going to create a recession. And if we go into recession when we already have a massive flood of money in the economy, now there, therein lies a whole new set of problems, because the only way to deal with recession is now to lower the rates that you just went two years <laughs> into right. raising. Amazing. You know, I, I mean, this is just nonsense. So the Fed is doing something it's never done before. I mean, it's never attempted to raise rates from such a low level for so long while trying to shrink its balance sheet to unwind, you know, the quantitative easing in the middle of this multi-trillion dollar deficit and fiscal expansion. And the consequences of the system are what are beginning to create, you know, all sorts of financial hiccups, like, again, the banking crisis in the spring was a direct result of the Fed raising rates. Mm -hmm. So we're beginning to see problems being created by the Fed's effort to slow the economy down because they were forced to address the problem of having created monstrous amounts of money. And the Fed really doesn't have a, a great way of reducing the amount of money it creates once it pumps it into the system, except to buy bonds from the directly from the Treasury. But then we have the fiscal problem where you know, the government ran out of money and they raised the debt limit by like a trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. So they printed a whole bunch of new bonds in order to create the money and capital that the Fed, you know, the government needed. So, 
you know, I have said from the very beginning, I seriously doubted that there was any realistic way that the Fed was going to reduce the $8.9 trillion from its balance sheet down to pre-COVID levels, which were $4.5 trillion, while maintaining an economy that they're trying to raise rates, fight off inflation, and not go too far to create a session. They can't do all these things simultaneously without creating some problems. And that's where I think these black swan events, they're sort of the reality of what's going on. Every once in a while, poking its head out to say, yeah, you can manipulate and manipulate all you want, but at some point, this stuff shows up somewhere. So this is the reason why more and more people are getting more bullish on stuff that you sell and commodities in general. It, this, I believe so, yeah, because it, I think looking at the reality and saying, okay, so, you know, this is the Fed's most aggressive effort, their mm -hmm. biggest effort to try to help the economy, and this is the result of what they've been able to manage. They've created more problems than they've solved and left us with this monstrous mess. So now going forward, how does that look? And that's just our internal problems. So now let's add in what's happening around the rest of the world. So people have heard about you know, the BRICS nations that right. are getting together and perhaps other nations joining this coalition to push back against the U.S. dollar because we've been shoving the dollar down, you know, foreign countries' throats since the end of World War II. And, you know, maybe we're at a political point where they've had enough. They understand there's really no simple way out. They are locked in. But, you know, if little by little they create some resistance, you know, that's just how... Uh, things evolve. You start off with a little bit of pressure and it boils and next thing you know, you may hit critical mass and, you know, you get to a point where enough support has left demand for the U.S. dollar to leave it free-floating and not be the world's currency, which would just be horrific yeah. because we would, overnight, we would look just as indebted as every other exterior nation mm -hmm. is that works mostly internally and then where does that leave us? I mean, oof. But even say, say the dollar, Fred, uh, someday l you, uh, loses the world reserve currency uh, moniker, it would be, it would be an ongoing kind of slow, slow thing, right? I mean, it would gradually and gradually. There wouldn't be a day when all of a sudden say, oh, well, the yuan is now, so right. Yeah. No, it wouldn't happen overnight, yeah. but let me tell you, it would probably begin to accelerate. Uh, once it started and mm -hmm. gained momentum, more and more countries like locking into that position where they're going to also accept the notion that they're going to walk away from the dollar, uh, try not to use it, it it's going to snowball. And I think it would accelerate the rate at which the dollar implodes. And, you know, again, when we go back to the beginning of our conversation where it is only confidence currently supporting the dollar's strength anyway, if you start piling on now a bunch of foreign countries that are putting pressure on the dollar to walk away from it, it just adds to the problem. So with all of that out there, I could clearly understand why people are saying, you know what, I would feel a lot more comfortable if I didn't have a, an exposure to what I can't predict, which is what will the buying power of a dollar right. be, you know. Uh, that article you sent me over the weekend, uh, it purports that we've lost 98% of the dollar's value since the removal of the gold standard in 1971. You think that's accurate? Probably pretty close. I think it's fairly yeah. close. So that's 100 to 1, effectively. So what cost you a dollar would now cost you 100. I'm sure there are instances that holds up. Wow. Uh, I know that that, that that statistic is definitely accurate if you go back to the 1913 establishment of the Federal Reserve Act from that point forward where the Federal Reserve took over uh, the idea of that they would now control the creation and value of money in the U.S. We definitely, by, from that point, we've seen a 98% yes. drop. Yeah. Um, I, I could do the math again from 71, but so that would mean that, you know, gold was $35. It should be a hundred times more. We're not at $3,500 gold. You know, we're at $1,900 gold. So, you know, how accurate that is, uh, again, there are probably instances where that will hold up somewhat. But the point is fairly clear, that once that, that lock of having gold against the paper has been removed, it has created a perpetual problem, and it has been a straight decline since 1971, and a straight increase in the price of gold since then. And, you know, when I say straight increase, let me just qualify that, that is over the long term, 
anybody who pays attention to gold on a short-term basis notices, you know, it goes up, it comes down a little, it goes up, it comes down a little. We've been doing this since I've been in the market, and gold was 350 an ounce. Hmm. Um, and then it went to 400 and pulled back to 375. And, you know, we didn't think we'd ever see the 400. Then it cracked that and never went back to the 300s again and so on. And then we had the same thing between five and 600 and seven and 800 and then 1,000 to 1,200. And here we are now at the 1,900 to $2,000 level. There will always be some volatility as it climbs. But on the long term, that chart for gold is very directly increasing at a very steep angle. And I think the more money we print, the higher gold will go. And, of course, it affects the prices of gold and silver coins already fixed in supply. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely can understand the logic of people wanting to add wealth in the form of something physical. You know, we call it sound money for a reason. It's because its buying power remains intact over time. Unlike paper money that is just diluted over time. It buys perpetually less and less and less. I don't know anybody anybody i don't care how conservative they are if they've never bought an ounce of silver or gold who actually believes that if they had fifty thousand dollars in cash today that in 10 years they're going to be able to buy the same amount of goods i don't believe anybody yeah. accepts that you, you, you couldn't accept that as a, as a, a reliable premise could you? you just couldn't totally unrealistic yeah you just couldn't you just couldn't do it. Here, here, this is a good question this is from alice thanks for having fred on i remember back in the day when andrew um used to talk about that the people in charge were always controlling the price of gold and silver. Can Fred explain if that's still the case and how do they do that? Yeah, there's no question that's the case. In fact, uh, hmm. every well, couple of years or so, the big boys like J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley, they get fined for the proof that they've been manipulating gold prices. And they do that by using massive amounts of contracts and options in the futures and derivatives market by putting a tremendous amount of downward pressure by selling against the gold market and creating an awful lot of down. It's, you know, the same kind of pressure that uh, stock speculators use to depress the stock value of a particular company. You know, they short the market with such a large amount of money, they just put a lot of downward pressure on the value. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the big banks have been playing this game. You know, the ETF is now under J.P. Morgan's control. You know, the biggest ETF for gold, the GLD, you know, we're talking about gold reserves being held by these major institutions against the exchange-traded funds that they create. And the more that they put pressure on those markets by shorting these products, uh, the more downward pressure they can create. You know, keep in mind that, you know, gold is sort of like a, a, a early warning sign or a warning sign. But it is not an economic indicator that the powers that be want to see the public paying attention to. If gold is rocketing up there, you know, it's going up 100 bucks every month, it is a clear indicator that there's a real fundamental problem existing outside the markets in the world of paper money. And if the environment is such that a lot of the big powerful bankers would like to try to keep the gold price suppressed, so as not to freak out the public, imagine what is happening if gold keeps going up even under all that pressure. You know, why isn't gold down to 500 an ounce anymore? They cannot suppress its price. They can't prevent people around the world from taking physical possession of gold. And, you know, again, its price will continue to climb on the back of this. So mm. uh, there's no question that there is still manipulation. I remember the first time we really caught wind of how extensive it was. There was the uh, the group GATA, Global Action Trade, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Those guys had put together a federal case uh, against a lot of the big banking institutions, Barclays and J.P. Morgan, for clearly manipulating the prices of gold and silver and have proved over and over again in open court that these guys do this. You know, J.P. got fined uh, a <laughs> billion dollars just recently wow. for fining their hand was caught again in the cookie jar. And they sit there and they go, yeah, it was a couple of rogue traders and, you know, we really weren't, <laughs> you know, actively trying to do that. But, yeah, they did it, so we'll pay the fine. Wow. So they pay their billion dollars and they go on and the game continues. But without that suppression, you know, silver would be $50 an ounce and gold would be 5000 So, And so, I, I think and to your point, too, I guess when gold really starts, if it would ever go to skyrocket, even the mainstream media, which isn't really up on a lot of things, 
they would talk about it, wouldn't they? And that would just really make it worse. For oh, the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They would talk I mean, about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the more that we start to see news about Gold's climb, uh, the more people become aware that, oh, there, that warning sign is going off. That means there's a problem. What's the problem? The problem is with paper money. We better address that somehow. And you've told me in the past, this is when you get a lot of calls. Uh, Fred Dyshevsky is with us on the Real World of Money. It is uh, July 5. We had to just do audio. We couldn't get the video thing uh, working. But what you've told us in the past that people tend to call you and you buy and sell gold coins, real American money, they call you when the price of gold is going up more than they more do so when the price is going down. down. I mean, you yep. know, what's up with that? It's the nature of investors. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, it's the it's the natural environment that we live in that people will follow. You know, it's fear of missing out is what they call it on uh, Wall Street. FOMO, FOMO, <laughs> fear of missing out. So when people start hearing the prices going up and going up and going up, they're like, oh, I want to protect Yeah. You know, uh, or part of it, and, and unfortunately it's a smaller part of it, but it is part of it, is it does wake a lot of people up to who, you know, those who might have been thinking, well, you know, I don't know if I necessarily should be involved. Maybe the problem isn't as bad as it seems, but then the price of gold starts going up and they kind of throw their hands up and they throw the towel in and go, okay, we're done. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't ignore this anymore. We need to participate in this. And, you know, people will move their capital. So it is interesting, but that has always been the case. The, more the price of gold increases, especially if we get one of these rapid upticks. I mean, the phones just start ringing off the hook. And, you know, <laughs> the, the same people who wouldn't look at it when it was down are heavy buyers when it's going up. And although logically that'll still work out in the long term, it, financially it's kind of weird. But, you know, it, it's just the nature of the way people are. And, and, and uh, you've often talked about this idea of just averaging in one you're going to be investing in gold. What, what is that about? Why does that work well? Well, it works mathematically extremely well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the fundamental issue is, is that I really have been trying for as long as I've been in the business to ignore, for the most part, the short-term movements in the price of gold and silver. I really don't care because I know in the long term they're going to be significantly higher. So if they happen to be moving up and down for, you know, economic reasons that are temporary, I'm not really overly concerned. I will take a look at those things because they do create from time to time good buying opportunities, but it's not really my focus because I think people need to be addressing this from a longer term yeah. point of view. They they need to be thinking five years out, not three days and five weeks, you know, where a lot of the traders who are day to day guys, they care about that day to day movement. Now, cost averaging in is a very simple but mathematically very powerful tool. So let's say you bought gold and it's, uh, let's just call it $2,000 an ounce. And for argument's sake, let's just say you're able to buy it at, at, at spot, which is not possible, by the way. So you buy $2,000 gold, then it drops to, let's call it 1900 Well, if you bought twice as much at 1900 as you did at 2000 you've now reduced your cost basis on the position that you hold. So that gold does not have to go back to 2000 anymore for you to start making a profit. Because you've averaged your cost down, mm-hmm. you actually can get in and out of gold at a, at a much cheaper price. So if you take $1,900 and, and you buy twice as much gold as you did at 2000 you now have three, let's say, uh, positions, and your total cost is going to be much lower. You're going to need gold to only have to go up to $1,950 or so in order for you to now make profit where previously you had to wait for it to go back to 2000 before you could make any money. Hmm. So the idea of cost averaging really works very well. The problem is it takes a little bit of guts. And, you know, uh, you can get gold down to $1,930 an ounce as your cost basis if you buy twice as much at 1900 as you did at 2000 So that's a smart play. So now it, if it goes back to, let's say, 1950 in your first purchase, you didn't make any money, but your overall cost has been reduced to now at 1950, you're in profit on everything you own. So cost averaging is brilliant. Hmm. It just takes an awful lot of financial guts. And, you know, a lot of people have a hard time recognizing that opportunity, but it does play out. The other option is you sit, wait it out, you know, just eventually gold will be higher. It always will be. And again, this is why I think people need to just be 
patient and more longer term minded and not be so concerned about, you know, short term volatility. Yeah. With Fred Jaszewski and uh, our Wednesday, first Wednesday of the month edition, uh, just doing it on the phone here because of the, the, um, the, uh, the internet thing and whatever, we couldn't do that. So, um, big picture, what do you see central banks? Do you, do you pay attention to other central banks around the world? And is it, do those, that action, whether or not they're tightening or, or, or printing euros or whatever, does it have any effect on us? Well, sure, uh, because, again, the dollar's relative strength is compared to other currencies around the world. So we need to review how other currencies are, are appearing to the world so that we can understand what the investors are likely to do. So let's say, for example, you know, the euro uh, is offering interest payments higher than what the Fed is in the U.S. It'll drive capital toward the euro because you'll get higher yields. So if the if world's currencies are doing poorly against the dollar, uh, then we become the default option for people to put their capital to work. And they will come to the U.S. and support U.S. investments, including those treasuries we talked about earlier. The, that's why they'll buy the 10-year mm-hmm. or they'll buy a 3-year bond. Because, again, we look more attractive than the rest of the world. You know, So Europe, for example, is experiencing inflation almost twice as much as we are here in the U.S., Again, I'm using the statistics that they're willing to accept. I don't buy them. You know that. Sure. <laughs> but in the U.S., we are claiming that we're at about a 5.1% inflation rate. Europe is at about 10%. So when it becomes weaker around the world and the foreign currencies lose more value, uh, by default, the investors worldwide will park their capital in U.S. investments, including the stock market and bonds and treasuries, and that helps support the U.S. dollar. So it is somewhat important to keep an eye on how the rest of the world's currencies are doing. In this case, of course, they're all going down. It's just a question of who's going down the most rapidly. <laughs> As Andrew used to say, what, the cleanest dirty shirt the dollar was? The cleanest? That was a great, great line. Yeah, it's a great analogy. Yeah. It's about what it comes down to. It's like none of these look particularly good. I mean, if you just took back and I gave you the statistical data of the U.S., okay, here's how much we have in debt. Here's how much we bring in in revenue. Here's our interest payments on our existing debt. Here's the current status of our economic environment. Here's what the GDP looks like. Here's how fast we're growing. If you took a look at that, and it were, let's say, a, a corporation that you were reviewing, you would walk away. There's <laughs> no way you would buy stock in that company. You'd be like, no way am I investing wow. in this. This is a, this is a mess. <laughs> but when it becomes the less, less bad of the options, the least less attractive option, well, that's pretty weak as a rationale for accumulating, you know, a, an investment in a particular market. But that's where we are. I mean, there are no economic environments worldwide that are able to manage the current environment, which is all of them are spending and bleeding money. Uh, we're just getting to a point where in the U.S. It, the numbers are staggering. You know, it, it, you know, another trillion here. Another yeah, trillion it's amazing. There. Are the central banks, Fred, uh, before we go, are they still um, buying a lot of gold? Like They were really on it for the last yeah. year. Are they buying a lot? Very, mm. very aggressively. And, oh. and I, I mm. find that as an interesting yeah. pretense for what their belief is about the value of their own currency. If any of them had faith in their own money, they would, in, they would encourage their treasuries to stockpile their own currency. You know, the U.S. does this to the Open Market Committee and the Federal Reserve, it buys foreign currencies. It's been doing that heavily since John Kennedy was president as a way of balancing out volatility in the dollar. But the problem is there's no foreign currency that's attractive enough to where people say, oh, there's a good one. I'll just park my money in that, and I'll be, I'll be happy, comfortable, in a safe little happy camper. Nope. No way, Jose. So when the, so these central banks, you know, so the big boys within each of these countries, what are they doing with their own money? Are they creating an environment where they're suggesting that there's good rationale for support by investing more of their own money back into their own currency? No. They're taking their money and they're buying gold. Buying gold. I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Do you see where Saudi Arabia got together with Putin and they said, we're just going to both cut, cut uh, production here so we can get the price of oil up. So they're getting pretty creative out there to get what they want. 
Well, sure. So, you know, if you were in that position, like if you were Saudi Arabia and you could effectively control the world's price of oil, and that is the product that you produce, uh, well, let's say we raise the price enough to where the people buying it won't choke and, you know, won't walk away completely or, or, you know, whatever, try to find some other alternative, but we can raise all this additional capital. Well, what do we do now that we've raised all this additional money? We're going to buy some gold with it. So... I find that very interesting that the central banks have no confidence in their own currencies. And I think the U.S. is really facing a battle. I mean, every time Powell, you know, as the films on national television, everyone around the world is paying attention to everything he says. So he has to go out there and be the, the cheerleader for the U.S. dollar. You know, he's got to tell people, yeah, okay, we're $33 trillion in debt. Yeah, we just raised the debt limit another trillion dollars. Yes, we're paying a trillion and a half dollars in interest payments on our debt. Yeah, we don't have the money to fund all the unfunded liabilities. Yes, we are bleeding money like crazy. Yeah, our economy is running on unbacked paper money, and we're going to continue to print the crap out of money going forward. Because let me tell you, inflation is not going away. Anybody who believes that is completely uh, being unrealistic. So all of these central banks, when Powell is out there talking about the dollar, he has to try to provide you know, that sense of confidence mm-hmm. that people will say, okay, you know, yeah, it's a mess, but ooh, it sounds like they've got control. And every time they try to pretend that they have control, something happens that shows us, nope, no, they did not. So mm-hmm. I just, by the premise as a whole, I'm sorry, I'm still in the camp that the emperor has no clothes and they can simply debate whether he's wearing the, you know, the blue gown or the purple gown. And I'm telling you, the man's naked. The man's naked. Well, that's why we talk to you to see who's naked and who, who's not. Or, as we used to say, like, when the tide goes out, who's wearing shorts? You know, one of those. Well, there it is. Yeah. You know, that's it. Every once in a while, the tide drops. We find out some guys are standing there with nothing on. And, <laughs> you know, when the tide is over our waist, you can't really see how bad it is. But when that water recedes, every once in a while, we get a really ugly view of what's happening out there. Mm-hmm. And it's getting worse and worse every time it, there's an unveiling because the size of the problem has gotten so large. And. You know, I've said this numerous times now, and I hate to have to say it because it feels really disheartening to me to have reached this conclusion, but I'm absolutely convinced now in my lifetime we are gone. We are past the point of any kind of resolution for the U.S. dollar by virtue of some sort of congressional act. There is nothing Nothing left. Nothing they can do, right? Yeah, nothing. Nothing Nothing. any president or Congress can do to fix this current problem. All they can do is maybe slow down the bleeding. But, you know, we we are absolutely bleeding money. And the rate at which we're going to create money going forward in the next 10 years is going to blow people's minds. And I'm telling you, if we're not at $50 trillion in national debt within the next decade, I'll be shocked. So, so they must have some kind of uh, uh, plan B if they're just going to just keep printing dollars, as Andrew used to say, until they run out of zeros, right? They must have something. We're going to do something when it gets too bad. Well, the smart guys are making their positions now. I mean, look at what the wealthy people are doing. You know, I mean, what's Bill Gates doing? What's he doing? He's buying land. Oh, that's right. He's buying all the land he can get his hands on. Yeah. Massive amounts of property and land all over the U.S. and and perhaps around the world. world, I'm not sure. But, you know, I mean, he's not sitting on billions of dollars. He's utilizing that capital to buy physical property. Mm -hmm. I think he understands the nature. So... You know, when the wealthiest people are not willing to store their money in the money that they've earned, mm-hmm. again, I think that's a really interesting indicator that individually people should follow that same premise. But, you know, it used to be just about diversifying. Again, now I find it more of an absolute financial necessity. Just don't count on the dollar retaining value if you're moving forward and looking at your future. And here's the funny thing. You know, gold, it's so appropriate now for just all the age brackets. You know, if you're a young investor stash a little bit of some, whatever you can afford, build yourself a little stash pile while you're young. And if you're a little bit older, well, then you have to protect your wealth more than younger people who have time to earn more capital. You know, the older people who are maybe not working anymore, who have their funds, you know, whatever they have left after retirement, it is critical that they sustain the value of that money. And the best way to do that is a little diversification I own gold and silver coins extensively for my personal beliefs that I think it's the safest way for me to store wealth long term. It has proven to be that way. 
But this is something appropriate for every age class now, and I think everybody should be putting away a little bit of gold and silver as a method of safe, safe protection, wealth protection. Do you come in contact with, uh, as customers, um, younger folks, 20s, 30s, 40s, and who are? A lot of them. Do, do a lot of them. Really? They're a little more technologically savvy, mm. uh, and they're learning a little bit more because of the advent of, you know, the Internet's um, ability to, you know, put information out there. Unfortunately, along with that comes an awful lot of crap. I mean, you know, if you open the world to all the information that's out there, not only do you get the truth, but you get an awful lot of nonsense as well. So we also find ourselves constantly having to, you know, uh, push back against some of the broad conspiracy theories that pop up every day. And again, you know, these are illogical um, results of what happens when there's tons of information with no filter. So, but yes, the short answer is we're hearing from an awful lot of younger people uh, as well, more than we used to, uh, who've kind of caught on. And I think that's really encouraging. Um, you know, I think that's great. When, when you, as a dealer, get to a point where you have more difficulty getting things, then you have to pay more. And that kind of drives up your prices, sometimes even different from the spot price, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's Supply a serious separation between the prices of gold and silver coins mm-hmm. and the price of the gold and silver itself as the demand continues to increase, especially since the value of the coins is a function of their availability and the and the fixed supply of them has locked down that one portion of that, that equation. So if supply and demand is how the world works, and I believe that's the case, uh, you can increase the price of something by increasing the demand against an existing supply or you can increase the price by simply reducing available supply. If you do both simultaneously, well, you know, the result's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> Very good, sir. Well, thanks for coming on the phone. I I missed your smiling face, but we'll do it next yeah, time. Yeah, sorry about the techno problems. Uh, uh, I guess that's part of the world. I hope we'll, we'll figure that out. I'll, I'll work on that after we're done here. But, um, yeah, and, welcome and, to the, the world. Welcome to the – tell folks about your company then before we go and uh, – and they can talk to you. Yeah, so yeah. U.S. Coin Capital, we're, we're very happy to help educate people on the idea of how to properly accumulate gold and silver, even why to if that is necessary, how to store it, how to view what amount to have, what types of gold and silver to own, how to know that these things are actually real and authentic, what percentages of one's wealth should be in there, how to sell it in the end, what usefulness it has under various economic circumstances. I've got a a good grouping of coins today because of current pricing where I'm offering some $20 Liberty Head gold coins. These are pre-1907, before the switch of our design to the uh, more recent St. Gaudens. Prior to that, in 1907, before that, uh, starting from the late 1860s and 70s, we had what was known as a Liberty Head gold coin because it featured the bold head of Miss Liberty, like the top of the Statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. if you can imagine that, on the front and the American Eagle reverse. Um, in Mint State 64, I was able to buy a group of these that are now under $3,000 a coin, $2,975. I think that's a great value for those added gold from time to time. And on the silver side, I bought a grouping of Morgan silver dollars, 1878 to 1921 is when they were minted. These are also Mint State 64, $119 a piece, a 10-coin minimum there. If we put those two things together, you have a $4,165 package with one of the $20 gold pieces and 10 of the Morgan dollars. I think it's a great way for people to begin or for those that are adding from time to time to take advantage of current pricing. So feel free to give us a call at 800-878-2646, and we'll be happy to walk you through the particulars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got $20 liberties and then the Morgans, right? Morgan? Morgan dollars? Yeah, Morgan dollars and MS64. They're, they're so inexpensive. They're, they're pretty, too. They're fun to have, aren't they? Oh, they're gorgeous. And all these are bright white, what they call them, bright white. So I've screened out the horribly, ugly, toned ones, hmm. only selected ones that not only have been graded, and each one sealed in its own NGC tamper-proof holder, professionally graded and certified $20 gold piece, but in the case of the silver dollars, we've only picked out the uh, the bright lustrous examples. They are really gorgeous coins. That's fun. Perfect for your stock drawer or someplace like that. Freddie, thanks a lot. 800-878-2646. 800-878-2646.
U.S. Coin Capital, that's C-A-P-I-T-O-L. Go to their website and look at some of their stuff, too. Okay, Fred, take care of yourself. Thanks for being here. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Great to be with you. Okay, brother. (laughs) Yeah, I hope to see you next time. Thank you. Fred Dushevsky. Yeah, we just couldn't get that thing going this morning, boy. It just wouldn't work. I don't know what it was about. We are going to take a little break here, and then we're going to talk to Alex Zek. Alec is one of the big forces behind this really uh, terrific um, thing that's coming up on uh, July 11th. Wow, not too, not too long from now, right? Five days next week, uh, the end of COVID. So we're going to tell you all about that and find out more about Alec Zek and why, he's, why he turned into be a show-me-the-virus guy. So we're going to do that about 1 o'clock this afternoon, 90 minutes from now. Um, just a quick little thing here. We have two big sales going on on uh, our website. Uh, Shen Blossom, and this is this week, so I'm mentioning it now during Fred's show. He doesn't mind. Um, Shen Blossom, you get uh, uh, 20% off on this guy. Anything with Shen Blossom, 20% off the week of uh, July 3rd, which is going on right now. And then also 18% off on the um, EMF protection device. The EMF protection device, uh, Blue Shield. And that's uh, the week, this week, uh, July 3rd through, I think, the uh, through Sunday or so. And you can get this guy. Use promo code ONE RADIO for both of these. Promo code ONE RADIO for both of these guys. And uh, you get some really big, big sales going on. Man, you know what I mean? Why did I just lose my slide? Oh, here it is. Okay. So, talk to Freddie, uh, 800-878-2646. Okay, Patrick Timpone, take care, and uh, we'll just see you in uh, about 90, 90 minutes or so. From the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. <laughs>